Welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast. I'm Nick Veronin, your editor in exile, and I am joined by a guest co-host, Will Reisman, our very own arbiter of indie rock culture. How you doing today, Will? I'm doing great, Nick. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, too. Um, as fans of this show will recall, Will, who covers music for SF Weekly, joined us around uh, the new year to discuss some of his favorite albums of 2020. Judging by the numbers of uh, streams, you all liked that episode a lot. And considering that I got to drink while we recorded it, I also look back on that segment fondly. <clears throat> We're doing it again. This time, Will is joining the podcast with a sampler pack of Anchor Brewing Company's new line of canned beers. The good folks at Anchor were kind enough to send both Will and myself some of their latest creations, including The Little Weekend, The Crisp Pilsner, and The Tropical Hazy IPA. So here's the plan, Will. While Will and I knock a few of these back, we'll also talk about Will's favorite albums of all time. I'll ask him to pick uh, at least one album from 2021. Um, we'll also give our honest opinions about these beers. I mean, as honest as two guys who like beer can be about the beers that said beer company gave us for free. What I mean to say is like, journalistic impartiality you know full disclosure here is what i'm saying um but but anyway we're, we're gonna try um and uh what are we gonna try first well how about we go uh with one of the big guns how about we go with the tropical hazy oh sounds great okay here we go cheers nice nice sync up on that yeah okay well um so before we get into 2021 i gotta say this first the Grammys just went down, and The Strokes, an all-time favorite band of mine and mm -hmm. yours, took home their first tiny golden gramophone for their early 2020 full-length, The New Abnormal. It was a great album. It deserved a win. Yeah, I loved it. You know, it's it's always interesting when the Grammys, they, they kind of have a, a track record of doing this, of kind of recognizing bands um, almost as like a career achievement award. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, you know, I love the new abnormal. I, I, we've talked about this, uh, you know, at the end of the year, how much I love this album. Uh, it's cool that the strokes, you know, it's, it's cool that the, the Grammys get, you know, recognize the strokes for the greatness. I mean, I think probably I was like, okay, where were you 20 years ago when it's this, it came out, mm -hmm. but uh, you know what? Kudos, kudos to the Grammys for a kind of, you know, getting on board eventually. What was it? Was it, it was around 2010 or uh, early 2010s when arcade fire one, remember? And yeah. everyone was like, you know, like, who's arcade fire. Exactly. Who, they've got this marching band thing on stage. And I'm like, these guys, come on, come on. Yeah. It's, it's, it happened that with Bonnie Vare as well. Like he won, I think he won whatever the album of the year and yeah, arcade fire won it. And like, I remember like going on Twitter afterwards and like seeing all these comments who are like, who the hell are these guys? I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, <laughs> Funeral came out seven years ago, and that was their best album. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's cool. It's like the Grammys have, you know, it's, it, it, the selection process is always interesting, is a, a way I would describe it. But, uh, you know, eventually they come around to, 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 to recognize the great bands. Is Funeral still your favorite? My favorite arcade fire yeah, yeah, album? Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah. It's, it's, I, it's one of the, my 15 favorite albums ever. I love that album so much. Uh, you know, it, every time I put that on, it kind of transforms me back to that, like, kind of, I hate to say it's like that, the, the indie rock heyday when really, like, bands could be fearless and just, like, they would, you know, do this kind of crazy instrumentation. I mean, like, the Arcade Fire, it's just, like, they, they had, it shouldn't have worked, but it did. Like, that's, like, Baroque and, like, pretentious and over-the-top ambitious, but I loved it. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, back then, like indie bands just like kind of like swung for the fences all the time. And, you know, that's a perfect example of that. Yeah. I think I really like Reflector a lot. I think that might be, Reflector. My, might be my favorite. Yeah. That was like their first divisive album. I mean, it had like, it was what James Murphy from LCD Sound System produced it. It had that very dancey feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, yeah, I think it, it that, that, that was, I mean, I went through the turning point, but yeah, people love that album. It's, it's a great album. It's, it's like really a funky one that's like got that New Orleans vibe. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's what I like about it. Some, there's a few bass lines on that album that are just killer. You can, can bop your head to yeah, it for sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, anyway, uh, you've got, you've sent me your, your very long, well, 100, Will's 100 best albums of all time. Um, no surprise, the Strokes is uh, is the Sid is number one. Um, number two, uh, let's start with a band that I'm just embarrassed to say I'm not very familiar with. Um, Bell and Sebastian. If you're feeling sinister, uh, this is this yeah. is your number two. This is my number two. And I just want to preface it like when, when we did this list back in in December, of, you know, I got to do my top twenty indie rock albums of, of the of the year. I kind of just got like drunk on power after that <laughs> and decided to like go go and you know fire off my top 100 albums of all time just for like my own and you know like i i had a kind of a advisory committee of my two friends who are you know guys my age so it's it's skewed a little bit but uh uh yeah balance of action if you're feeling sinister just like one of the the greatest indie rock albums of all time it's Stuart murdoch is the the singer songwriter for them they're a scottish band and they had this very whimsical kind of frail, delicate sound. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's been like compared to Velvet Underground in the past where it's like, the, like kind of the Stephanie says kind of Velvet Underground. Um, but they just got this super unique aesthetic where it's, it's like folk, but it's also kind of like biting lyrics. And there's kind of, um, you know, a little weirder elements where you wouldn't call it like a, a straight folk album. It's, it's just like what I consider like kind of quintessential indie rock that the lyrics are incisive, that the music is, it's catchy. It's, it's about vulnerability and it's about outsiders. The album, it, it, there's like kind of a theme throughout it. It's just one of those, uh, you know, records that kind of, you know, it's, it's like for the outsiders, I guess, quote unquote. And it just, that's what I love a lot about music. It's, it's about kind of recognizing the people on the margins and the sounds completely about it. And, and the, Stuart, the, the singer songwriter, the, the, the main songwriter has just this very delicate delivery that feels very warm and inviting and beautiful, beautiful album. Okay. By the way, how are we liking, how are we liking this hazy? Will? very tasty. It's very full flavored. I like it, you know? So, so if I, if I were going to put on my critical hat here, I would say about this hazy that, um, you know, you just, you just cracked yours. Um, I just cracked mine. I've had a couple of them prior and as they got a little bit warmer got kind of a little too sweet for my taste i think i know Mm -hmm. that that happens with the hazies um but this one i don't know maybe it could be a little more balanced but maybe you like this maybe if for people who like the sweeter hazy this might be the one uh yeah i mean it's it's got a little bit of those sweet undertones and i i totally hear what you're saying beers like that when when they're when they have kind of the fruitier elements, it's best to drink them when they're nice and cold. Otherwise, you kind of get like that yeah you know, saccharine feeling. But yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. This as is... that happens probably with all of them. As they as they, exactly. it happens with everything. As it starts to warm up, you start to like be able to taste the sugar in the beer. And like <laughs> the cheaper the cheaper the beer, the better it is to be like ice cold, right? Because you start tasting exactly. that corn syrup and those Coors Lights or you know PBRs I, or whatever. 
I would just say, as a rule, drink your beer while it's cold. Mm-hmm. There you go. Drink you it know? fast. It's a very, very simple philosophy. <laughs> um, so, okay, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to your list of 100, and I'm going to move down here, and I'm going to look for one um, that I that I know. Uh, I see Lonesome Crowded West, number 10, very, very good uh, Modest Mouse album. Um, I haven't um, scanned this entire list. I don't know if you have Modest Mouse further down, but uh, Lonesome, Lonesome Crowded West, why is that number 10? So, uh, yes, I do have uh, the Moon and Antarctica on this list as well. Uh, but Lonesome Crowded West, just a, again, like this is like an indie rock, my favorite indie rock album, and like just a magnum opus indie rock album. Uh, like, just like, sh- like hit, going for the f- home run on every song. And Isaac Brock, who I've, I, I kind of have always kind of categorized singer song or songwriters into these two, two kind of groups where it's like, you have these very erudite, smart, brainy songwriters who, if they weren't making music, I feel like they'd be professors or teachers or something in that regard. And then you have these songwriters who just like are so instinctual and so primal that like, if they weren't making music, I don't know how they'd survive. And like Isaac Brock is just definitely in the latter category where it's like, (laughs) if he wasn't making music, I feel like he'd be like pumping gas at a gas station or something. But he'd be the guy you'd want to talk, like you would, you would like, he'd be a, he'd be a, a really, uh, your favorite bartender or something. Yeah, exactly. And like, I've, if you've seen documentaries, I've, there's a documentary that Pitchfork made about the making of this album in particular. And they, you, they try to try to like pry information out about Isaac, about like why, what was the kind of the meaning behind the songs. And you can tell he's not that comfortable or even that like, you know, he's just not that comfortable explaining it where they came from. He just doesn't have like the words to describe it. He, it just seems so like in his like inner core, like, like the things that are in his, in his main, he just has to get them out and he doesn't know like the, the processing of it. It's just mm-hmm. like, it's just something that has to happen. He doesn't think too much into like where it stands and like the, the greater scheme of things. Like he's talking about like God and religion and isolation and like uh, gentrification, urban, yeah. urban sprawl on this album. It's like, you know, it's like a, it's like a, a Lonesome Crowd of West. I mean, that the titles sums all, it all up. All the like, malls are soon, are soon to be ghost towns. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, and he was dealing it from the Pacific Northwest point of view where he's like seeing this creeping sprawl kind of in that in that area. Uh, but just like some of like the most crazy, candid, earnest, like self-reflective, introspective lyrics I've ever heard. I mean, like, it's kind of funny that you went from uh, Stuart to Isaac, because like those are my two, my, my two favorite songwriters of all time. And, and they're both from two totally different mm. kind of um arenas but they both kind of get the point across so well and and lonesome crowd of west is like they have like these vast statement songs yeah and the metaphors like the, i mean teeth like god's shoe shine i mean that's mm-hmm. so this is i think this is probably my second favorite modest mouse album and this might be <laughs> i'm gonna uh this might be a little divisive here but i mean i i fucking love um good, good news, news. Good. so I knew, I could tell where you're going as soon as you started. And like, I was just I was just talking about this the other day, where it's like, that is a fucking great. I, I, I don't fucking like swear. That's a great album. And and like that was when they got popular. And like one of the things that's kind of funny is like, float on, you know, it's their their big hit. And like if you think about it, that's a weird song. Mm-hmm. And it and it, but it's catchy as hell. It's a great great song. And it's like a perfect example of like 
you know, just because a song is popular and catchy doesn't mean it's like, you know, superficial. Mm-hmm. It's like that. And the good news is a, is a great, great album. Uh, probably their last, I mean, it is, it's their yeah, last really good yeah. one. Yeah. The, the, um, what, uh, we were dead before the ship even sank that had a, that had a few songs. I mean, the single on it, um, that, that, that's sort of what it goes into in the end when we're, yeah. we're going to all become, uh, someday, somehow someone's going to steal your carbon. Like that's a great line, but th- nothing, nothing really stands out for me on that album. It, it, yeah. They had, the, I mean, I don't know. Obviously modest mouse making pop music is a way different beast than Justin Bieber making pop music, but it did try to like, they were like trying to make almost accessible, overly accessible songs, which was just bizarre. Cause he is, he's not a pop star, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but great, great album for sure beautiful lyricist so yeah and i mean the reason and i think you know the reason one of the reasons behind why i love lonesome crowded west um so much is i was 18 i was on a road trip with my parents we stopped at like a walmart it was like so hot in rural oregon we were on our way up to like yellowstone and stuff so we were in modest mouse territory and i had like a little bit of spending money from my crappy job i forget where i was working mm-hmm. at the time and i bought i like I, i'd heard float on and i was in walmart and i bought lonesome crowded west and i had a disc man and i was like listening yep. to that song yep. as we like drove to yellowstone and glacier and the tetons blame it on the tetons and i mean yep. it just stuck with me um great road trip album as far as i'm concerned yeah they modest mouse has a they're a great road trip album band I mean, Wilson Crowder West, they have, they have the album called This Is a Long Drive mm-hmm. for someone with nothing to talk about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, there you go right there. But yeah, they had, just had these songs that feel very vast, but also very personal, you know? Totally. Um, so uh, how about we how about we pivot to another of these beers now? Uh, let's try the, uh, the Crisp Pilsner, okay? Mm. Here we go. Uh, we weren't quite synced up on that one. That's okay. Okay, I failed. You need the little bit of you need the little bit of discrepancy because that's what you know. That's what they do when they're like Elliot Smith. He 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 would uh, double or triple all his lyrics. Exactly. Yeah, it was an overdub. Mm-hmm. And you have uh, you have Elliot Smith on here, but I think okay. So you have. I think what I want to talk about is a band I'm also very familiar with uh, is uh, Radiohead. So you have. Okay, computer at twelve, mm-hmm. and you have. I see you have Kid A at thirty. That might be a controversial choice for some. Some might have. I mean, there's some people who would say Kid A is number one, hands down, yeah. forever. But um, why don't you talk about uh, Okay, computer, and maybe why you why there's so much distance between Okay, computer and uh, and Kid A for you? It's so it's it is strange because like when you're making these lists, which are like purely just like you know like an ego fluffing for your, like, you're like, oh, I'm going to show, I'm going to show people that I know about music. You know, like when you're making these lists, it's like, you really have to think about, okay, is that album great? Because I mean, like you try to put yourself back in the moment when you first started listening to it. And like, when I first started listening to okay computer, it was like nothing I'd ever heard before. It really was one of the first albums. It was like my gateway from like growing up listening to like classic, you know, Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin. It was like one of the first albums I really took a chance on. And it just blew my mind. If I was going to go back and listen to Radiohead now, I'd probably listen to Kid A because it's it's one of those albums that just you know it, it it's alluring. I don't know if that's the great word, but like you just kind of want to explore it more and more. Mm-hmm. But I, so I try to put my mind like back to where 
you know, I was when I first heard OK Computer, because it, it is, it's hard to like kind of remove yourself from these bands that you're super familiar with at the moment. You know, like I, I've, not, I've been a Radiohead fan for years, you know, decades, but, you know, listening to Kid A, it was like this, it was like listening to music made in outer space. It really was this like completely jarring experience. Like, I mean, I got, got Kid A, I mean, I got uh, OK Computer tattoos. Like, you know, like it was, like, it was <laughs> nice. you know, it was immersive, you know, experience. But like Karma Police is like one of those songs where it's just this eerie, haunting, you know, it, creepy music. It, it seems menacing. The video, the music video was just like the scariest video ever. Yeah, great, um, great and, music and, video. and his lyrics are so, you know, opaque that you're like, looking at them and you're like studying them and you're like, Oh, I know what this means. You know, like it, it's, it's just like so open to interpretation and, and it felt like, you know, when you listen to, I mean, okay. Like Radiohead is a band now with, it's probably like the most popular, probably the most popular band in the world, which is so weird. Cause they don't make accessible that, music. That, that is an, that's a fair point. I like that. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, like from paranoid Android to, to, um, to lucky, like airbag. I mean, like th their songs are, uh, it's just on this album are, are just, like so expertly crafted. They, they create this like strange, weird, ominous feeling that is, uh, it's like, it's exciting. You feel like you're like, I'm onto this. Like, I, I know what he's talking about. Like, you're like, you're like, screw consumerism, screw <laughs> capitalism. I mean, I was saying this as like, you know, a 19 year old who didn't know shit. Yeah. So like, but I mean, it makes, makes you want to like, you know, throw your, you know, smash up the machine and, uh, yeah. in a way that's like completely not visceral or like punk at all. You, it's, it's, it's like, uh, just this very subtle kind of acerbic, uh, commentary on, on kind of modern culture. And so like it, it and the music is great too. Um, so yeah, I try to put my high, my kind of my mindset to when I first heard that album. But yeah, Kid A is like one of like the, you know, the such a special album for me. Like I love listening to that. I love going back to listen to that. Yeah. Um, when I first heard Kid A, uh, I think I wasn't even super familiar with Radiohead outside of Karma Police and the things that I would have heard mm -hmm. on uh, Live 105. Shout out to Live 105. Rest in yeah. peace. <laughs> it's there was no live 105 it, where i was growing up by the way it's alt 105.3 now and as far as i can tell it's like all machine gun kelly all the time um oh god anyway uh, <laughs> i'm getting older i'm like kids right, machine gun kelly i don't want to be depressing and be like who the hell but yeah that's um, so yeah, but, uh, so anyway, I was, I remember I was like, I think I went skiing at big or snowboarding at big bear with some friends and I had bought it for my friend Alex for his birthday and he listened to it. And then like, I listened to it and probably smoked a little bit of weed, man. Mm -hmm. And I was just like that. I had never, you know, in, in headphones, never heard anything yeah. like that before. And I think a lot of people never had, I mean, it was, it was early Y2K. What was that? Two, it was 2000. Yeah. And, um, mm -hmm you know, there was, there were, there was this music technology stuff that these machines that, that nobody had before, like to do the things that radio had, had done people were doing on that album. I mean, some people might've gotten close, like, you know, uh, some of the great dub artists come to mind, but I mean, that would have been so much work and not that what kid a wasn't work, but like, you know, I, I read about the making of kid a, and I'm not going to remember the name of the device, but, um, 
they were kind of like the way that this somebody wrote a book about it and i read steven hyden i think that's probably it and then on uh-huh. on pitchfork there was an excerpt about of the book yeah. and you know they were they wanted to one up they wanted to do better than kid a or a okay computer, okay, computer and like yeah. how, how are you going to do that and um they just started playing with with machines and they did some some badass stuff um and i think uh everything in its right place uh um uh, johnny greenwood was like playing with this thing that was like reversing tom york's voice and you could do it in real time and anyway yeah it's it's it is i mean it's like it is kind of like the gate it, it really presaged so much i mean it, that's been talked about kind of ad nauseum but yeah it was the maybe the most influential album of this century yeah, you know i don't yeah. think that's i don't think that's a crazy thing to say i remember like making mixes like cd mixes and i'd put motion picture soundtrack on there because i love that song but it was it was from the cd where it had like five minutes of like kind of dead air afterwards like right, the first right, two right, minutes yeah. and like there's a hidden track and everyone's like do you yeah. know that you gave me a seven minute song and <laughs> yeah five of it's nothing okay how are we feeling about the crisp pilsner uh, it, it's it's you know a light easy goes down smooth uh, yeah, and so it's got it's got a little bit of flavor. So like this is this is my riff on the the crisp pilsner, and I, I'm not a I'm not a proper beer critic, so I might not be doing this justice. But like, um, you know, like okay, Coors Banquet, the cream colored familiar cream colored can, and like mm-hmm. that's not my that's not a beer that I personally reach for when I'm at the store. But like on I'm in a good, if I'm in a good mood, I'm probably like, I probably had a few beers already. It's a warm day and I reach into the cooler and I get an ice cold Coors Banquet. And I know that's a lager and we're talking about a Pilsner here at, at Anchor, but like Coors is, maybe it's just the color of the can it, it, or something suggests creamy to me. And this Pilsner right now, it has, it, it, it feels, it, it feels like it has the mouthfeel of, of, a, of like a, you know, a cheaper domestic, but it's, it's a little bit elevated. That's, that's, I guess how I would describe this beer. That, yeah, I compl- yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's, it's, it's familiar, but yeah, it's, it's a familiar tasting beer, but it's not, um, but it's not, I don't, you know, it's not run of the mill, you know, yeah. it, it, there's, you can see where it came from, but like it's, it isn't a, a banquet, no, you know, no offense. no offense to your to your to your beloved Miller. Um, <laughs> Coors, you mean? Of course, yeah. that's what you said. Yes, yeah, Coors. Like, I yeah. actually, so, when um, I do go cheap beer, I tend to go Modelo. I think you like Modelo or Modelo. Coors Light. So Coors Light is uh, to me it tastes like sweat socks. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, a sh- it's a shit beer. Uh, no, uh, I. It's so weird because like I where I grew up, everyone you basically were handed a Budweiser when you were like twelve years old, and like here, this is the beer you drink for the rest of your life. And I really, despite like every single um, person I've ever met who was disgusted at that, I drank Budweiser for almost my entire adult life. But I've recently made the transition to Modelo, um, which, in the grand scheme of things, isn't exactly like you know upgrading from a you know a Toyota to a, a Aston Martin, but it's it's a big leap for me, so I'm I'm, I'm proud of that, you know. All right, all right, okay. Let's let's get back to the music. Um, 
All right. Uh, I'm just going to call out a few here and we'll try to, we'll try to breeze through these. Um, For sure. And then, and then I'll hit on one that we can talk about a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, Annual notice by the trail of dead source tags and codes. So good. Um, Real quick. I think what that album did, what did that, I mean, what did that album do? Try try to, try to be succinct. Uh, It's just concept album where they'd have like recurring motifs and, God, and recurring and sounds motifs, yeah, yeah. throughout the album where you'd hear something from the prior track and the last track and just again like if i'm talking about my favorite albums i'm talking about bands that just like swing for the for the fences and like connor you know the, the lead singer of annual you know, so trailer dead he, he can't really sing um but he <laughs> screams yeah his yeah. little lungs out on every on every track and I, and I love him and it's just like about putting yourself out there and it's just one of the it's just one of the quintessential great albums of all time. And you know, this is not from uh, source tags and codes, but, um, um, but what, what, I forget what album this is, but he, he's got, he's got some great turns of phrases. And this one mm-hmm. is a uh, random lost souls will ask me, what's the future of rock and roll. I say, I don't know. Does it matter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like great. I've, I've, I've had that. I've interviewed him and uh, Jason, the guitarist a couple times. They're super sweet guys. Really, really nice. Okay. Um, last time we were talking, I think we talked about the black lips and I think we, I, I think I said to you, like, it's too bad those guys can't get their shit together because, <laughs> uh, they're, they're very talented and no offense to them either. But I mean, they're a part, they're like a party band from, uh, from Athens, right? Athens. Georgia. They're from Georgia, from Atlanta. Atlanta. Atlanta yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll say I, I actually hung out backstage with black lips once at the great American music hall and, ended up stage diving that night uh they they party yeah it was fun yeah um but this this good bad not evil what i what i I mean it's it's them at their most focused it's their garage rock band they are you know famous for being notorious drunks and kind of their crazy antics but like they have a sensitive side to them Mm -hmm. which you know they are these like miscreants and like i feel like they're like Hey, we just at their core, they're like we're we're outcasts, we're idiots, but we're surrounded by freaks that we love, and like we love you if you're a freak, you know. And yeah. Like, the, the the last song on their track is about like um, the last track on this album is about one of the one of the band members who died in a car accident. It's just got like you know, it's just it's a it's a really pretty pretty song. Yeah. And like if you get them in the right moment, they can be vulnerable and pretty. And they've and got like, like you know they've got sort of that outlaw country streak uh, in in the background always. Yeah, and that's and come like, out a little bit they, more more recently on their like. Have they even released sure. a new album yet? They've been talking about it. I don't know if that even. They, I think their most recent album was two years ago. Two and a half oh, okay, years ago. But, so that did. Come but out. like, what every if they're making like country rock or whatever, alt country or outlaw country or like garage rock or you know punk rock, they oh like they every one of their albums is has hooks. Yes. They have these like you know they have the ability to just like give you hooks, even if it's like the most like lo-fi, scuzzy, you know, distorted, full of you know cigarette smoke vocals they have they have hooks uh you've got a few you've got a few bright eyes on here um Mm -hmm. that was a big part of my life for a while and i I just actually recently listened to um digital ash and a digital urn again Uh um that the the that pair of albums that came out in um what was that 2004 2005 2005 yeah yeah so you have uh, i'm wide awake 
it's morning at 13. What else do you have? You have the lifted. Lifted, um, which is, yeah, I think I have that kind of towards, where do I have lifted? 74. 74, oh, yeah. Um, two, I mean, Connor, you're kind of hitting the recurring theme about like songwriters, like writing, you know, I, I would say like, yeah, again, I've talked about Isaac Brock and Stuart Murdoch and Will Sheff from Ockerville River and um, Connor Oberst from Bright Eyes. There's probably like the pinnacle of songwriting. And I, I think about um, I'm Wide Awake It's Morning. It's like it's an anti-war album. It's a breakup album. It's a love letter to New York City. I mean, like all those components are, are kind of put in there. Um, you know, he's he's the poster child for for this kind of music and he's kind of been ridiculed in the past it's kind of it's crazy now like he's he's partnering with phoebe bridgers on all these projects he's like the elder statesman for yeah. and that's just like so jarring for anyone who grew up because <laughs> he was like the, the, the wonder kind for for so long and and oh i'm wide awake this morning was his first i think like real like like in a device like obviously very celebrated album like i'm not stepping outside the box by saying i love it but like it was his like most professional album to date and he was he prided himself on that super lo-fi aesthetic you know like he started making albums when he was like i don't know 14 in his basement and like they're they're kind of hilarious to hear but like you could see how talented he was and like i'm wide awake was like this the big leap forward which the album before that was lifted which i think is an absolutely phenomenal album but this was the one that it's like, I'm going to focus and not just like throw every idea out there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it, just full of, and it's like a, just full of beautiful folk rock songs like Landlock Blues and Lua are two of the most well-conceived, well-produced, well-delivered indie rock songs I've ever heard. Uh, so we got to wrap it up soon. Um, but, uh, I want to hit as much, as much as I can before we do now, before, before we move on, let's, let's crack this third beer. All right. Now this is the little weekend and I know you weren't be able to track down a little weekend <clears throat> before, um, before this, uh, taping, but, uh, I will tell you about the little weekend. One sec. Let me take one more sip to refresh my memory. This guy, oh yeah, okay. So this this guy is uh, 100 calories listed right on in big font on the on the label. So they're going for a low cal uh, beer here. It's a light golden ale with natural mango flavor, 100 calories, like I said. And when you get a low cal beer, you know it's usually it's got to be because alcohol is sugar, uh, low alcohol. So it's 3.7 percent. And this is what I got to say, Will. It sounds like you've kind of already been on this train with mm -hmm. your history of, of domestics and now the mm -hmm. Modellos. Um, I've kind of come full circle in my beer drinking, I think. Um, <clears throat> I've gone from like shoulder tapping the, the cheapest beer I could get sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, like natural light or natty ice. I don't, yes, I don't think really. I've had natty ice since I've turned 21, though, to be fair. <laughs> that like... was the first beer I ever drank was a, a, was a like a 14-year-old. Yeah. It's, it's, took me an hour yeah <laughs> and then i got really into the craft beers and i still like i still like the craft beers um but now um getting older and you know there's a lot of chores i gotta get done on the weekend and um number one don't want to necessarily be hungover gotta get up mm -hmm. number two I maybe i like to have some beers while i do the chores and i like a light beer um and at 3.7 percent 
That's like microdosing alcohol, my friend. Yeah, I, 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 I'm totally on on board with like the doing the chores and maybe having a few beers. And as someone who has recently gotten fat, I think like anything that's like low cal is is good for me. You know. Yeah. Like this, the pandemic has not been kind <laughs> on my body shape. No, it hasn't. It hasn't. I I, I, I tend to walk like maybe you know one block. I walk the dog, but it's a small dog. And you know, I walk to get a burrito. I walk to get a beer. Like, <laughs> does it? Yeah, I guess if you walk up the hill to to get a burrito, does that balance out? I yeah, maybe, maybe I have, we can hope. Yeah. Um. Okay. So, uh, I'm gonna try to hit a few more. Um. Probably actually only have one time for one more. I want to say, I love. Um, I love Granddaddy. Um. That's all I'm gonna say. Uh, they're from the Central Valley. Modesto, amazing band. Um, I I love this album, uh, the Glow Part Two. I wish we could talk more about that. Um, it's such a strange microphones, such a strange and and in what I can't even come up with the word industrial folk. That's what I call (laughs) it. But right before we started talking, I noted that you have the Velvet Underground and Nico at 54. And then I said, wait, do you have, um, do you have loaded on here? And you said, that's like maybe around 150. And so I want to close by asking you, you know, in a couple of minutes, why, uh, why uh, what's so great about uh, Underground and Nico? Cause I think some people would say maybe loaded, uh, you know, cause Nico, that was like their commercial album or whatever. Like uh, Andy Warhol tried to, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and like I know that we're on a, a tight time frame, and like every answer that I give is like super, you know, I, I I ramble a little bit, and like when I talk about like so, when I tell this is like my favorite hundred uh, indie rock albums, it's like how does a band that came around nineteen sixty seven, you know, come like how are they indie rock? And like to me, like the first indie rock album is uh, Velvet Underground yeah. and Nico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't give you like a description of why they are like it's jangly. Rock, like, that's, it's jangly, and it's it's like it's distorted and it's 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 you know it's it's not commercial but but so just you know hearing a song like heroin i'm waiting for a man i'm waiting for oh that's such a great i'm waiting for that's like the first punk rock song i mean like like, so god i'm gonna be late to my next meeting but this is okay it's okay does did a bag cost twenty seven dollars? Is that oh, yeah, right? Is exactly twenty seven dollars in my hand uh, (laughs) you know uh yeah, like who was writing about heroin in in that day and age? I mean, like that's just like it was unheard of. But it's also just like the that kind of insistent, very like one chord, two chord, like mm-hmm. propelling, you know, beat. Like that was a template. And you you had like the modern lovers who did the same thing, and then and then like I don't know, like the Ramones and like all the punk bands after that. But it was like the idea that like you know, Velvet Underground had amazing musicians. But the idea was like if you want to get your your point across if you want to get have your voice heard you don't need to be you know this classically trained musician yeah. and and that is the like kind of the it started with that album and with that kind of song where it's like just get you know get it out there um and and hearing that it's like it's just this like it it, it just vibes with me so much and that's such like a cop-out answer but like you hear that and you're like, oh, this is every band that I love. You can trace it back to this. You can hear their origins in this. And don't get me wrong, Loaded. I mean, it's got Sweet Jane, which is, I mean, twist my arm. I've got to be one of the 20th yeah. best, 20 best songs ever recorded. I mean, like, 
it's got rock and roll. I mean, it, it's got it's it's an amazing album, and it's it's more polished, obviously. Um, and you know, like it, it's kind of one of those things. Like, well, what's is it more imp- like? I don't know. Like when you're making these lists, like what is more important versus yeah. what is like better you know and it's kind of like you kind of draw that line i don't know it's, it's yeah, really hard to well, draw that line no and i think yeah i think i think i i think i might if i were making a list too i think i might put the velvet underground and nico up a little bit higher um you know it, it's 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 got the banana you know everyone knows yep. that um you know j- just real quickly for what i was trying to reference earlier and i was stumbling over my words is like uh, the Velvet Underground uh, teamed up sort of in a way to make this album like um, um, Andy Warhol was kind of like the producer, like in the way that like maybe uh, Kanye is a producer now. It's not really a producer. It's more like a, a facilitator, a, a, yeah. a curator. And um, and and he was like, we, we got to have this um, singer Nico on this record. And, and um, Lou Reed, you know, insisted that the album be called... <clears throat> uh velvet underground and nico because he you know he obviously went along with it so he must have agreed on some level but he he also didn't feel like it was a true velvet underground album and um mm-hmm. it's got some really sweet songs nico's songs are you know great if you've seen any wes anderson movies you've probably heard <laughs> well if you've yeah. seen what 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 uh that the royal tenenbaum, royal tenenbaum. There. these yeah, days yeah. that's actually nico's song Oh, it's just a straight up Nico song. Well, it's on that album, well, though, she, isn't it? She, no, no, she, it's a. Uh, so you know who wrote that song? This is a good bit of trivia. Okay, Jackson I, Brown wrote that song. Oh. These days, yeah. Okay, He's like these a seventeen-year-old. All right. Well, that's all we have time for. Um, I hope you enjoyed tuning in to listen to uh, Will uh, school me on some of this stuff. And um, <clears throat> coming up on the podcast. We have a uh, interview um, conducted by staff writer Benjamin Schneider with California State Senator Scott Weiner. Uh, we're talking about um, what might change post-pandemic that will be positive for bars and restaurants. Um, outdoor dining forever, to-go drinks forever, maybe. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. everyone, Ben Schneider, SF Weekly staff writer here. In this week's paper, I wrote about efforts by San Francisco's top politicians to help bars, restaurants, clubs, and music venues recover from the pandemic. I spoke to San Francisco's state senator, Scott Weiner, who is leading this charge at the state level, to discuss why bars, nightlife, and culture are an important issue for him, and how that connects to his broader political agenda. But first, it's helpful to know what exactly Weiner and fellow lawmakers are proposing. At the state level, Weiner has introduced two bills, collectively known as the Bar and Restaurant Recovery Act. The first bill, SB 314, would make permanent the temporary pandemic-related regulations allowing restaurants to provide full service, including alcohol, outdoors, and extend those rights to bars that don't serve food. The bill would loosen regulations around catering, 
make it much easier for multiple bars or restaurants to share spaces with one another or non-alcohol serving businesses and speed up alcohol permitting. The other bill, SB 793, specifically targets music venues and special events. This bill would create a new alcohol license specially tailored to music and performing arts venues, ensuring that they don't have to also include a full-service kitchen in order to welcome in minors to see shows. It would also allow cities to designate certain areas at certain times, like the Castro Street Fair or the Folsom Street Fair, as open container zones, uh, where you could walk around carrying a drink. Yet another proposed state law, SB 389, from Napa Senator Bill Dodd, would permanently legalize takeout cocktails as long as they're served with a meal. And then at the city level, there are other efforts to update uh, regulations around shared spaces and alcohol. San Francisco Mayor London Breed, together with supervisors Asha Safai and Raphael Mandelman, are introducing legislation to make the city's shared spaces program and all of those outdoor dining parklets permanent. While it's still in the early stages, this law would eventually require businesses that have taken advantage of the program to pay a fee to use the outdoor space and follow stricter design and usage regulations than they do now. Together, these laws could radically change the financial picture for bars, restaurants, and venues, a group of businesses that have been absolutely decimated by the pandemic. Of course, there are still many details to be worked out, like mitigating noise and making sure people with disabilities can safely use the sidewalk. Um, and all that is gonna play out in the coming weeks. For now, though, let's hear from State Senator Scott Weiner about why restaurants and bars are such an important part of San Francisco's culture and why he feels California's alcohol regulations need to be updated. Senator Scott Weiner, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. All right, so um, you've been a ally to the bar and nightlife industry for a long time. You commissioned a report uh, when you were a supervisor that quantified the industry's impact on San, Francisco, San Francisco's economy. Um, and you've spearheaded multiple bills to raise last call to 4 a.m. Um, at the state level. And I know some SF Weekly readers were, were watching those bills carefully and were pretty disappointed that uh, they didn't work out. Can you talk a little bit more about why you've been so engaged on this issue? Um, why is it so important to you in, in your political career? Sure, well, I mean, nightlife and entertainment, it's not just at night, <laughs> um, are uh, really part of the heart of San Francisco. Uh, if, you, if you think about why do people come to cities? Why do people wanna live in cities? There are various reasons, uh, but one of them is the culture. And that culture manifests in a number of ways in, in terms of art, arts, in terms of just being around uh, diverse people and not just people who are like you and, and, and uh, the intellectual scene, the book scene, but nightlife and entertainment are part of that. People, um, uh, people want to be able to go out. People want to be able to see live music. People want to be able to go dancing or have a drink with friends. And, and it's really part of the DNA of any great city and particularly San Francisco. Uh, I will also say that for me personally, as a gay man uh, in the LGBTQ community, uh, our nightlife scene, our bars and our clubs, uh, in addition to you know, the bathhouses and all the other entertainment venues in the queer community, it, it's how we connect 
into our community in many ways. And I still remember as an 18-year-old, as a freshman in college in North Carolina, when I, I was not even out yet, um, sneaking into um, a gay nightclub in Durham, North Carolina. I, I, was, I was underage, but I, I somehow managed uh, to get in, not, not on the first try, but I think on the second or third try. Uh, and and I, I wasn't even wanting to go out so, so I could drink and get drunk. I don't even know if I even had a drink when I was in there. I wanted to find other LGBTQ people. I wanted to find other gay men, lesbians. I want, I want trans people. I wanted to find people who were, who were like me. Uh, and, and that's so important for, for the LGBTQ uh, community. So for a lot of different reasons, it, it's important. Totally. Um, has there been much of a, an effort on the part of politicians to really support nightlife and um, look at, at some of these old laws in the way that you are in the past? Um, are, you, are you familiar with that history um, in terms of policymaking? Well, there's been not nearly enough support from politicians for, uh, for nightlife. Nightlife has, is often viewed as a problem to be managed hmm. or contained. Uh, people look at uh, at the negatives. Uh, they look at you know what creates noise. Um, someone might leave a bar and 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 puke on my doorstep, or um, there might be a fight. Uh, so people are always looking at the negatives. And of course, as with anything, there are always going to be some negatives and some uh, not great things that happen. Um, but people don't then don't look at the positive. So we, we, we've seen over the last really 100 years, and not just including prohibition, but even apart from prohibition, lots of restrictions, limits. You can only serve during certain hours. You can only operate you know, in certain ways. Really arcane, weird restrictions about when you have to have food or not food. Uh, and and you know, sometimes these, or, or, or prohibitions on dancing, which just is bizarre to me. You're like where it's illegal to dance with another person in a given space at a given time, um, which is sort of uh, not very um, free thinking in my view. And, and we've seen these laws um, used at times to suppress uh, queer people, to really suppress the LGBTQ community. Um, you know, leading up to Stonewall, um, one of the things that that one of the things that provoked Stonewall was the the incessant police raids uh, on, on bars, which we saw not just in Europe, but in San Francisco and elsewhere, to try to harass and prevent uh, the queer community from even being able to gather using, um, you know, these restrictive uh, liquor laws. We've also seen it um, in terms of uh, these laws being used to prevent Black people from gathering, because it wasn't, you know, uh, heading up toward, to Stonewall in the 40s, 50s, 60s, it wasn't just gay bars that were being targeted. It was um, bars where, where Black people congregated. And so these laws have been used uh, to um, oppress communities where society didn't want us to be able to connect and organize, et cetera. Um, so there have been other uh, champions, not very many. Uh, my predecessor in the Senate, Senator Mark Leno, was always a champion for nightlife, both as a member of the supervisors in the legislature and there are a few others but we are few and far between mm. no I, I think that's a really striking point about the way that these laws kind of go beyond regulating alcohol as such and are sort of used 
for um, you know policing norms in in society and and kind of making sure people sort of stay in their lane, um, as it were, and you know often in a really oppressive way. Um, is there sort of a a moralistic or or maybe even religious element to these laws? I mean, it seems like they go beyond concerns about health and safety. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, some of it is about you know wanting to not have what is what society perceives as chaos. And and I get, I don't get me wrong. I'm not. I understand that if you're like in a residential neighborhood, you know, you want to have some limits on the amount of noise. So I, I don't. I'm not begrudging people that, but it sometimes goes very far. And if you look at our liquor laws, you know, I mentioned the number of laws we have um, around prohibiting people from dancing, that there are, you know, if you're in a regular bar, it can be literally a crime just for two people to start like dancing with each That's other. Wild. These are California laws? These are California laws. Wow. Yeah, we're, look we're looking at that issue, by the way. I don't think it should... I personally don't think it should ever be illegal to dance. <laughs> if you're in the supermarket and you want to start dancing with someone, like you should be able to do that. That's like a wonderful thing. Dancing is one of the beautiful things in life. Um, but also there are these, um, California has a, uh, there's a law that you, that if you're serving liquor, you can't have uh, nudity. Um, and and so, for example, in, in in gay bars, sometimes we have, you know, bars have go-go dancers who are on the bar top or on a stage dancing. Um, and technically, if they're wearing like a jock strap to their rear end is showing, that's a violation of state law, mm -hmm. let alone if they're completely naked. Um, they And so, and that's just like a normal thing around the world in gay bars to have go-go dancers. And... And that's illegal in California unless they're completely covered up because of a stupid law that says you can't do that. Um, and so uh, we have a number of laws like this that are very moralistic in nature. And it also points to a broader issue, and this is something that I've gotten more and more vocal about, is that why is the state so deeply involved in alcohol regulation? I understand the state being involved in the like the distribution of alcohol and the taxation and, and some of the, the rules around how alcohol gets sold and distributed. I don't have a problem with having a state system for that. I do have a problem with the fact that if a, that a city can't on its own say this bar should be able to serve liquor, that you have to have ABC not just sign off on it in a ministerial way. It's one thing to say once the city says this is okay, ABC just issues the paper, but ABC, the state agency, does its own process and does its own public comment and its own appeals and hearings and so forth, even if a local city has already done its own process. Hmm. I have a problem uh, with that. I think that there are a number of aspects of nightlife uh, and, and liquor law in California that should be devolved to cities, that if a city, you know, the, when when a bar is applying for a liquor license and ABC is going through a whole public process um, and hearing objections and appeals and protests to that liquor license, ABC is viewing that in a vacuum. All they know is that there's this one bar and there are these two neighbors that are fighting it and this, that, or the other thing, whereas the city will know, okay, this is a commercial corridor where we want 
nightlife or certain kinds of nightlife activities to happen or not happening. The city can take a more holistic planning view. Mm. And so we should be devolving and transferring a number of ABC decision-making and public process responsibilities to cities to handle. Mm. I thought that was interesting what you said earlier about this perception of chaos that kind of entails uh, regulation or a lack thereof of, of alcohol um, in society. And that made me think about sort of the arguments against um, some of the efforts that you're pushing in, in Sacramento, um, this group Alcohol Justice, and I think a couple of related groups are, are concerned that you know, having more people potentially, you know, drinking at street fairs, um, you know, outside of the the beer cages that we have now, or, um, you know, people, even people who are visibly uh, drinking in these outdoor dining parklets, uh, minors will witness that, or maybe people who are um, recovering from alcoholism will witness that. And it's um, and, uh, something that will harm them in terms of um, giving them ideas about drinking in the future, um, starting yeah. habits that, that they, they may regret in the future. Um, so yeah, how, I, how do you respond to those arguments? I, I just don't think there's any validity to that. Listen, alcohol justice is essentially a prohibitionist group. If you listen to what they say, they, they essentially support prohibition uh, of alcohol. We tried prohibition of alcohol. It was a complete disaster. All it did was fuel crime. And in fact, we know from the war on drugs that prohibition doesn't work. It does, prohibition, whether you do it through just dramatic restriction or outright prohibition, either way, restriction, prohibition, it doesn't work. All it does is people still use as much as they would have, right? We've had the war on drugs for 50 and arguably 100 years, and people haven't used drugs less. In fact, there, in some ways, there's more addiction now, more overdose deaths. Why? Because we've, we've made it taboo and stigmatized it and pushed it underground and created, uh, you know, an underground, you know, illicit market, and and people don't seek help when they should, and and, and it just it it doesn't work. It's a fiasco. And you look at some other parts of the world, you know, like in parts of Europe or Latin America where they don't stigmatize alcohol the way that we do. There's a lot of people outdoor, outdoor seating, drinking. It's just sort of a normalized part of life. You don't see like higher rates of alcoholism. You know, if anything, it's, if anything, it's lower because they haven't stigmatized it. And so people like, you know, it's just a normalized part of life and you drink and consume in moderation. And so we, our whole approach of like this, like moralistic, puritanical approach to nightlife, to alcohol, to drugs, it does not work. And it actually ends up harming people more than helping them. Uh, and so that I just have a philosophical disagreement. And don't get me wrong, alcohol, we do have, you know, alcoholism is a problem, um, you know, that people can get very sick from overconsumption. People can engage in violence from overconsumption, including domestic violence. People can drunk drive. My aunt was killed by a drunk driver in the 1970s. It was devastating to our family. And the, the guy who perpetrated it had almost no consequences. Mm. Changed my family forever. I'm very sensitive uh, to this. I know people who have had domestic violence, alcohol-related in their family. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I'm not suggesting there are no issues with alcohol. We need to treat substance 
um, use disorders, whether alcohol or meth or opioids, as a real health issue and as a public safety issue. But that's very different than whether someone should be able to sit in a parklet and have a glass of wine or, or whether someone should be able to stay out until 4 a.m. instead of 2 a.m. and have a cocktail. Um, I, I don't think I don't think that parklets or nightclubs are what's driving alcoholism. Like you, you may not be able to stay until 4 a.m. to uh, you know to to drink or, or drink in the parklet at least before the pandemic, but you could go to the corner store or the Safeway and get all the booze you want to get. So I, I think sometimes there's a little bit of a tunnel vision going on here. And to that point, I mean, I talked to some uh, venue owners, which is. Um, you know, one piece of, of these laws that you're working on, um, who uh, told me about how, you know, this requirement that venues currently need to have a full service restaurant to serve alcohol, um, or rather, sorry, full service restaurant in order to bring in minors to see shows, um, really has nothing to do with, um, you know, whether minors can access alcohol, which is the ultimate point here. I mean, you know, protecting minors from, from that. Um, in, you know, this rule that you need food, uh, is just not connected to the the enforcement well, or lack thereof of, of alcohol. Yeah, I mean, my, minors yes. can walk into the Safeway. I'm not, no offense, Safeway, <laughs> but minors can walk into a Safeway and there's booze, there's alcohol right there, and and the and the cashier is supposed to card you. I I'm 50 and I still get carded, and great, they're doing their job. They get carded, and that's how we prevent them from. Uh, from having the alcohol. And so I don't know why it would be any different in a live music venue. Um, and I get, we don't want kids to be drinking. I, I, I'm, I'm all in favor uh, of, of that. But it's, um, we sometimes let the cart drive the horse in a way. Hmm. So I'm interested in this, this broader vision of cities that you, you invoked just now when you mentioned, you know, cities in Latin America and Europe where they have sort of a different relationship to, to alcohol and to public space. Um, and I think uh, you spoke to that, and so did Mayor Breed the other day at, at a press conference in the Castro announcing um, both your, your initiative at the state level and um, the, mayor, the mayor's work at the city level to basically make outdoor dining permanent and streamline a lot of these regulations about alcohol. Um, and you know, it, it made me think about how uh, some, some bar and restaurant owners that I've, I've spoken to for this story were telling me that if things had kept going the way they were before COVID with the, the price of doing business, with the red tape for getting permits, um, they actually wouldn't, don't think they would have survived over the long haul. Um, and in fact, COVID might actually help them in that it's prompting these regulations to change. Um, and it just makes me wonder, I mean, wh why did it take this crisis, this most severe crisis that we've all lived through um, in our, our lifetimes to, to make the city and state rethink some of these policies and regulations? Well, I think in life in general, we human beings have a tendency to get stuck in terms of this is the way things have been. And so that's the way it has to be. And, and proposing to do it differently means the sky is going to fall. And so before COVID, we had all sorts of fights about public street space, right? A lot of us myself included, have been advocates for more diverse use of our streets. It's not just for cars, 
that there are other users, pedestrians, cyclists, but let's have you know more use of our streets and let's maybe close off some streets, whether it's temporarily or one day a week or permanently. Um, and we did some of that with like Sunday streets, for example. Um, we have a parklet program, but the parklet program was very underutilized because all the red tape around it and all the fighting about it. And then COVID came, which has been a complete disaster uh, on so many levels. And, you know, with millions of people around the world dying, half a million in our country, it's just horrible tragedy. But what that one thing, one side impact of that tragedy was that um, we were able to try some new things without having to go through a 10-year process of everyone fighting and yelling at each other to say, we're letting restaurants open up in parklets. We're closing down a bunch of streets for the slow streets. Uh, program um, and we're do we're just doing this period boom and ab i want to give abc credit abc said okay go ahead you can do these kinds of things you can do takeout alcohol um, for restaurants um and and it's worked out well and i have people i know who i know have been like the well, sort of like pro parking people oh we can't take away any street space from cars we can't lose parking oh my god it's gonna be terrible who have told me boy i hope this all becomes permanent this is wonderful so people have had a chance to see what it's like when a city actually um, makes creative use of public space and prioritizes public space and, and what it's like when streets are some streets are closed off and people can hang out on the street and sit and eat and drink on the street and and just be with their community and their friends and how wonderful. Uh... Good morning. Senate session will convene in five minutes. Senate session will convene in five minutes. And, and people can see how wonderful that is. And anyone who's been to Europe or parts of Latin America know how wonderful that is. And now we see how wonderful it is uh, in our own community. Uh, and so that opens people's minds. It's no longer a theoretical discussion. It's something people are actually experiencing in their daily lives. And that makes it easier to make permanent change. But boy, we had better, um, you know, grab this opportunity. It's so easy to lapse into the old broken status quo. And I, um, I know that like the mayor said at the press conference that, you know, we want to, you know, of course, as we make things permanent, take public input, et cetera. But that can't be the old way of doing it, where we just let, you know, a minority of loud people fight forever and nothing ever happens. Totally. Well, I think that's a, that's a great note to leave it off on. And um, speaking of reality, it sounds like you are being yeah. called to, to a higher duty right yeah. now. So um, thank you so much for your time, Senator, and um, good luck with today's session. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's edition of the SF Weekly Podcast. The episode was produced by me, Nick Veronin. Mike Huguenor is our audio engineer. For more hot takes, deep dives, and alternative views on San Francisco news, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week. Mm -hmm.